Our sermon text for today is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5, verses 21 through 34. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came, on the, then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus, and came up behind him in the crowd, and touched his garments. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I'll be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. The past couple of weeks, you may have seen a viral video of a young Jamaican boy called Roshan Ewers singing a simple melody that goes like this. Lord, I thank you for sunshine. I thank you for rain. I thank you for joy. I thank you for pain. It's a catchy song, and it's absolutely theologically sound. The video of Roshan singing enhanced by the creativity of South African musician Kifness, has been viewed on YouTube over 5 million times in the past month alone. But why? What is so special about this video? What is so special about this song? What is so special about a simple melody with a little bit of a backbeat? Well, here's what's so special about this song. The song seeks to make sense of suffering. In just a few words, the song affirms that God is involved in suffering and that we ought to be thankful for the suffering God brings to our lives. One thing that is common to everyone in this room this morning is that we have brought with us our suffering, our pain, our sorrow, our grief. A common denominator to all men and women is suffering. It happens to the young and to the old, to the rich and to the poor, to the educated and to the uneducated. It crosses nationality, ethnicity, social status. Suffering knows 
no discrimination. We're all trying to make sense of suffering, aren't we? We want to know ultimately that there is a purpose in our suffering. We want to know that our tears won't go to waste. We want the why question answered. We want to know that our pain and suffering, the path that we walk of pain and suffering, will one day meet redemption. As we turn to our text today, we'll see two stories of suffering. One, a woman with a chronic disease. Another, a father of a dying girl. Great pain, great suffering. And yet, just as the disciples run to Jesus in the middle of a storm, just as the demoniac ran to Jesus from amongst the dead, both this woman and this father run to Jesus in the midst of their pain. My hope is that today you will run to Jesus in the middle of your pain. My hope is that today you would know that it is good to suffer at the feet of Jesus because Jesus gives hope to the hurting. Our text today is another one of those inclusio stories. It's a story that gets interrupted by another story and then returns to conclude the original story. You may remember uh, one of these, another inclusio story from Mark 3, uh, verses 20 through 35. Jesus begins an interaction with his family, family, and then the interaction is interrupted by the scribes that came from Jerusalem. And then once that interaction is over, then Jesus resumes his interaction with his family. I told you that this is commonly known as the Markin sandwich. It's a very theological term. Today's story begins with a man pleading for Jesus to heal his daughter. His interaction is interrupted by a woman with a chronic bleeding disorder, and then Jesus' interaction with the father of the dying girl continues. But for the sake of time, that's the whole passage, okay? That's the whole, that's the, that's the whole unit of thought. But for the sake of time today, we'll only see Jesus' interaction, initial interaction with the father and then the interruption with the woman with the bleeding disorder. Next week, we'll continue Jesus' interaction with the Father as we conclude chapter 5 of Mark. So today we're going to learn three things about Jesus in this story. First, we're going to see that Jesus is present. Then we're going to see that Jesus is powerful. And then finally, we're going to see that Jesus is personal. So Jesus is present. One of the greatest gifts a suffering person can receive is to have others present in times of need, in times of suffering. You may remember last week, our own missionary, Mark Sauter, stood before us, greeted us, and reminded us that almost precisely one year ago to the date, he was here in Melbourne as his father passed. Now, what did he remind us 
about that day. He reminded us that as his father passed, we were with him. We were there with him. Being near to the hurting is one of the most loving things we can possibly do. Jesus models this in his ministry. He doesn't sit in temples or in synagogues all day long. He doesn't find a chair in the ivory towers of academia. No, we see Jesus over and over again surrounded by the crowd. The picture that we see of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark is of a shepherd who smells like sheep. The picture that we see in the Gospel of Mark is of a Jesus who is a healer who loves to be among the sick. And all this miraculous activity in the Gospel of Mark is a constant reminder that Jesus brings his kingdom to the people. There is enough sovereignty in Jesus for all his miraculous work to be done remotely. Technically, Jesus could work from home. But Jesus, the Jesus we meet in the Gospel of Mark, does not stay home. He's accessible, he's available, he's present among the people. In verse 21, Jesus is just returning from the country of the Gerasene on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. We observed that story last week. He went over and was immediately met by the demoniac man. After delivering that man from his thousands of demons, the people of the city tell Jesus to leave them. So, Jesus heads back across the Sea of Galilee where now he's met by the Capernaum crowd again. The difference between the two locations is striking. The Gentile-influenced country of the Gerasene, east of the Sea of Galilee, had no interest in Jesus whatsoever. Instead of being met by a crowd, he is met by a single man. Instead of curiosity, he is met with violence and aggression. Instead of being pursued by a crowd, he is told by a crowd, go away. But back at Capernaum, the Jewish-influenced area, Jesus is once again surrounded by people. We often see this crowd as a distraction, as an obstruction to Jesus' ministry. But now, but now, we can see this crowd a little more favorably, can't we? After we've seen the extent of the rejection of Jesus on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Now Jesus is surrounded by the crowds. But in verse 22, he, met, he meets one person in the crowd. His name is Jairus, one of the rulers of the synagogue. The word synagogue simply means to gather together, a gathering place. And that's exactly what a synagogue was. A place where Jewish people would gather together for religious purposes. 
Unlike the temple, which was set in a specific location in the city of Jerusalem, a synagogue could pop up anywhere. For a synagogue to exist, all that was needed were ten Jewish men. And a synagogue could start. Many cities had multiple synagogues. We hear of synagogues spread throughout the Greek, Roman world in the New Testament. Also, unlike the temple, which was a place for sacrifices, the synagogue was not a place for sacrifices. The synagogue was much more like our Sunday morning gatherings than temple worship. The synagogue was a place for worship and instruction, teaching, studying of the Word of God. Synagogues were led by a director called the ruler of the synagogue. These were not teachers on the synagogue, but they were lay people. They worked without pay, who were responsible for the grounds, for the contents, and for the organization of the worship service. They would contact the person who's going to teach, the person who's going to lead in the reading of Scripture. These were often men of high repute in town, and Jairus was one of these men. Jairus seemed to be a family man. He was concerned for the well-being of his daughter. He was likely wealthy. We read in the other Gospels that there were musicians in his house. The, more, the, the mere fact that we know his name speaks volumes of his importance. Mark rarely names people in his gospel other than Jesus and his disciples. But most importantly, what we see in this passage is that Jairus was a man of faith. Notice his faith. He comes to Jesus, not demanding, not saying, I'm a person of influence, I'm a leader among my people, I demand an audience with you. No, he comes to Jesus and falls at the feet of Jesus. The picture here is not just of a man physically collapsing, not just a man going from standing to bowing on the floor. The picture here is of someone of high standing, humbling himself. Jairus is a man who knew that all that he had could not fix his brokenness, his grief, his suffering. So he knew he needed Jesus. He knew he needed to come to Jesus. Now, marvel at how accessible Jesus is. Notice that Jairus did not need to go to the disciples. He didn't need to go to Jesus' mother to have access to Jesus himself. He didn't need saints to intercede for him. He didn't need the approval of the religious authorities to approach Jesus. He simply came to Jesus. And what does Jesus do? Jesus 
Jesus says to him in attitude, what we read in Matthew eleven twenty eight: Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This was true of Jesus who walked on earth, and it is true of Jesus who reigns in heaven today, Hebrews 4, 15 and 16. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Even concerning our greatest need, our salvation, Paul says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off, that's referring to the Gentiles who were separate from the covenants of promise, you who were once far off have been brought near, how? By the blood of Christ. Jesus brings us near through his blood. There is no need that we have on this earth that we cannot bring to the cross of Jesus and be welcomed. There is no pain that we carry in this life that the cross of Jesus will not help us bear. There is no question, no doubts, no suffering, no way we may bring to Christ that will come back void jesus answer to all of our suffering is i understand that's jesus answer to us when we come to him broken hopeless i understand no really i understand do you feel lonely i have too do you feel weak I have two. Do you feel betrayed? I have two. Are you mourning the loss of a loved one? I have two. Do you feel pain? I have two. Do you wish this cup to pass from you? I have wished that as well. Jesus says, I understand. He says, my body was broken. I understand. My body was broken for you. Don't miss this. Jesus is saying his pain, suffering, agony were for our sake. Jesus is saying that he suffered to give purpose to our suffering. Jesus is saying that he suffered so that we didn't need to suffer. Jesus is saying that he experienced death. So we wouldn't need to experience that. Look, listen to Hebrews 2.9. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Jesus is saying, my suffering, right, was to alleviate your suffering. My suffering was to free you from your suffering. The greatest suffering we could experience, possibly experience in life, death itself, the great enemy, Jesus endured on our behalf. Why? So that we could experience 
life. Through our sin, we all have earned disease and death. The reason why we suffer is because we believe ourselves autonomous from God. We believe ourselves to be wiser than God, so we rebel against God. That happened with our first father, Adam, and we have learned that from him. We have learned to think of ourselves as greater than God. So we reject his wisdom and we embrace our own wisdom. The Bible tells us that the fact that there is a separation between God and man is caused by sin. The reason why this world is broken, the reason why we experience death and disease is because of sin. Ours, Adam's, all of humanity. But Jesus died to forgive us of our sin. So he calls us to faith and repentance. He calls us to believe in him and to turn to him. Away from our sins. And when we respond in faith and repentance, Jesus takes on himself the curse. And the consequences of sin. What does that mean? Jesus takes upon himself the guilt that we've incurred. When we turn to Christ, on his cross, our sins are pinned. But not only that, Jesus died so that we wouldn't need to suffer the consequences of sin. What does that mean? Jesus died so that we wouldn't need to die eternally. Jesus died so that we could live the life that he offers, life abundant. Friends, at the heart of the gospel, there is a suffering Savior. At the heart of the gospel, at the heart of the Christian faith, there is a Savior who dies for the ones he loves. And why? Because through Jesus' death, death is defeated. And through Jesus' resurrection, resurrection is guaranteed. In other words, Jesus died, and in his death, along with him, death died. Not the physical death that we all experience, but eternal death. And because he didn't stay dead, but he resurrected we were promised that we too will rise with him one day. And in that day, pain will be gone. Suffering will be done away with. All these miracles that we're seeing here in the Gospel of Mark, they're pointing us forward to a greater miracle, to a greater restoration. We all will experience in Christ as we meet him in eternity. This is the source of hope that Jesus gives to the hurting. Even if our suffering begins, brings us down to our knees, as it did Jairus, Jesus promises redemption for those who believe in him. Jesus promises to take our brokenness on the cross and promises us eternal life in a renewed 
earth in a renewed heaven where death and disease will be no more. You see, here's what Jesus is doing through the healings that he's showing us in Mark. He's saying, do you see these things? You will all experience these things in heaven. What Jesus is doing is he is bringing the future kingdom into the present. And he's saying, here's what I promise you. If you believe me, if you believe my gospel, and you come into my kingdom. So Jairus tells Jesus the source of his brokenness. My little daughter is at the point of death. And then he demonstrates his faith. Faith not only in the presence of Jesus, but in the power of Jesus. He says, come, lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. He believed Jesus could help him in a time of need. And what does Jesus do? He simply goes. He follows Jairus. Now let us behold the power of Jesus. Presence without power is caring but not helpful. Present, power without presence is neither caring nor helpful. But Jesus, through his presence, makes his power available to us in our time of need. He comes with Jairus knowing he can help. But along with Jesus comes the crowd, the throng. This group of people who was fascinated by the Son of God, but in the middle of the crowd, we find our interruption. We find a person with great pain. Like Jairus' daughter, she's a woman. Jairus' daughter was 12 years of age, and this woman had suffered with constant discharge of blood for 12 years. Jairus' daughter didn't have much hope to live, and this woman didn't have much hope in life. Her bleeding problem wasn't just an inconvenience to her. Her bleeding problem wasn't just an embarrassment to her. Her bleeding problem, much like the leper we met in chapter 1, made her ceremonially unclean. Her mere touch would contaminate others with her uncleanness. She had no access to the temple in the presence of God for 12 years. If she was married, she could not have had sexual intimacy with her husband for 12 years. She was excluded from society for no fault of her own. Her condition was deplorable. Look at verse 26. She had suffered much under many physicians, meaning those who treated the body could not help her. She had spent all her money trying to find a solution to her problems to no avail. But not only that, her condition was not just bad, it was bad, and it was getting worse. I look at verse 27. She had heard the reports about Jesus. She heard of his healing power. She heard of his ministry to the needy, to the sick, to the oppressed. She heard that he was accessible and that he was powerful. So she said to herself, if I could only touch 
his garments. I would be made well. This is the beginning of faith. But notice that not only did she have faith, she acted on her faith. In verse 28, we read that she came up behind him in the crowd and announced. Now, because she was unclean, for her to appear in public unannounced was against the law. Not only that, it was against the law for her to touch anyone. Friends, in reality, there were two laws that stood against this woman. The law of nature, which states that our bodies are subject to decay. We don't naturally get better. We age and we get worse. We're all marching towards death. In our fallen nature, the corruption of the body is the default direction. But she also suffered under another law. She suffered under the law of Moses. This law, unlike the first law, is not a result of the fall but a result of the covenants God made with His people, Israel, the law was good. But it could only assess her problem. It couldn't resolve it. Under this law, she was separated. She was cut off. She was alienated from the presence of God and the presence of her fellow men. But this woman knew the law But she also knew something else. She knew that there is never, it is never against any law to come to Jesus. Coming to Jesus does not require a sinless, law-abiding lifestyle. Coming to Jesus does not require a religious background. Coming to Jesus does not require rituals. Coming to Jesus does not require a previous purification. No, it is Christ himself who purifies us from all our defilements. This is the power of Christ. We do not wait for our children to learn how to read, to teach them how to read, do we? We teach them how to read when they don't know how to read, so they can learn. And this is the same with Jesus. We don't come to Jesus when we have our lives together. We come to Jesus so that he can put our lives together. This woman found herself not under the law, not trying to please God under the law. She found herself under grace. She understood what the apostle Paul meant when he said, for the law was given through Moses Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. She understood what the Apostle Paul meant when he said, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So what did she do? She believed. She trusted. She acted on her faith. She left all her fears behind and ran to Jesus. And because of that, she experienced the power of Jesus in her life. Friends, so often we think that we will experience the power of Jesus because we are so disciplined. Sometimes we think that we will experience the power 
of Jesus because we've read the Bible for the past year without skipping one day. We've mastered sin. We, we, we can think of so many things that would grant us the power of Jesus. But this woman trusted in none of that. She knew that her only hope was to run to Jesus, so she does. She touched the garments of Jesus and was immediately healed. Power flowed from Jesus to her. You know, this week I parked my car to run an errand, and when I returned to my car, I turned the car keys and absolutely nothing. I immediately thought, how far am I from Andrew Nelson? But then I decided to put the mechanic myself. So I popped the hood and realized that the connection cable to the battery was loose. So I tightened it and voila, it worked. Power flow from the battery to the rest of the car. This is the picture here. This woman was disconnected from the power supply. There was no turning of keys that would ever result in power until she touched the garment of Jesus. Everything changed. This is what Jesus had come to do. He had come to powerfully, powerfully heal the sick. So when our need is met by the power of Jesus, we experience wholeness, we experience healing, we experience restoration, we experience redemption. Now, let me address what I think is an important question that this text raises. We all know people that we've prayed for healing, right? that we had hoped for healing, and, and, and these people didn't experience healing. Very often, very faithful Christian people. Should we be looking at the application of this text to be the same way that we should do the same thing that this woman did? Should we be looking for Jesus in the same way that this woman looked for Jesus? In other words, is the application of this text that when we are ill, we should come, we should look to Jesus for physical healing. Friends, Jesus is able to heal every physical ailment we have. He was able to do that 2,000 years ago. He is able to do that today. And we should believe that Jesus heals. And we should pray for healing. But is the point of this story that Jesus always heals our physical bodies? The answer is no, but yes. Okay? The answer is no, but yes. At this point in redemption history, God will sometimes heal us. And sometimes God will say, my grace is sufficient. Physical healing has an expiration date. Physical healing in this world is not ultimate. Spiritual healing is. This woman that was healed by Jesus went on to eventually die. Everyone that was healed by Jesus in the Gospels went on to die. 
We don't see believers that are 2,000 year years old today, do we? Even the most faithful believers experience death. Jesus himself experienced death. So no, in this time in redemption history, Jesus does not promise to always heal us. And when we're not healed, it does not mean we have no faith. It simply means that God has purposes for our lives that go beyond our comprehension, that go beyond our understanding. But the promise that Jesus does make is that in life eternal, healing is guaranteed. When we believe in Jesus, we're making a faith deposit, trusting that in a greater way, our bodies and our souls will be healed in heaven. So what Jesus is doing here is he is giving us, he's putting before our eyes heavenly realities. He's saying, do you see what I have the power to do here on earth? Wait and see what will be done in heaven. So friends, these healings are a foretaste of the promise of heaven. They are a foretaste of the promise of eternal life. Now let's consider finally that Jesus is personal. As soon as the woman touched Jesus, he perceived power leaving his body. So he asks the question, who touched my garments? Jesus was not just interested in giving out his power, but he was interested in the person receiving his power. Out of a great multitude, he seeks one. Our Savior is a personal Savior. He seeks the lost because he doesn't just want to give out his blessing. He wants to know and be known. He wants to be one with the lost. He wants to be united with the sinner. This is the true meaning of having a personal relationship with Jesus. Not merely coming to Jesus for what he can give us, but coming to Jesus for Jesus. Jesus is the greatest benefit Christianity offers. Paul says, indeed, I count everything as lost. I can put everything behind. Everything can go to the trash because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Jesus knew this woman's greatest need was to be known by him. So she zeroes in on this woman. Who touched my garment? The crown surrounds him and the disciples completely oblivious to the spiritual reality surrounding them ask the question. You see the crowd pressing around you and yet you ask who touched me? Jesus, unfazed by this near mockery of the disciple, keeps looking for the person who touched his garment. So the woman filled with fear and trembling comes before Jesus. Jesus finds her. And just like Jairus, she falls at the feet of Jesus and tells him the whole story. In verse 34, we find the heart of this story. Actually, this is at the heart of this whole story. 
This is at the heart of the gospel. Jesus tells the woman, daughter, your faith has made you well. Notice that the woman came to Jesus in fear, but she is not reprimanded for her fear. Instead, she's commended for her faith. Her faith made her well. Literally, her faith saved her. And this is how Jesus gives hope to the hurting. Faith is built through suffering, and salvation comes to us by faith. James 1, 2, and 2 through 4, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and steadfastness has its full effect. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. At the end of the day, the best thing that happened to this woman was not the fact that she was cured from her 12-year-old blood condition the best thing that happened to this woman was the fact that jesus wanted to know who she was there's nothing greater than to know jesus even if we meet him through great pain and suffering friends i know that so many among us here today so easily can relate to the desperation of this woman i look around this room and I see chronic pain. I look around this room and I see life-threatening diseases. I see significant health battles. I look around this room and I see parents who care for their rebellious children, broken relationships, broken families, struggles with sin and faith. The picture of a woman approaching Jesus with fear and trembling is not a foreign sight in so many of our prayer lives. But friends, this story tells us that the victory that we are looking for is found not in the healing, but in the healer. This text tells us that victory is found when we find Christ. And there are tears that we will cry our entire lives. The Bible does not promise that our tears will stop in this life. No. The promise is that God keeps count of all of them. He knows our tears. He knows our brokenness. He knows our fears. He knows our struggles. And He cares. Friends, although there are tears that will cry this entire lives, we listen to this promise in Revelation that He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. We look for a day when we can look at the rearview mirror, and there we'll see pain, suffering, grief, death, sorrow. So friends, the call for us today is to trust Jesus in, his, in this life, so that we can live with him 
in the life to come. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, how we need our faith to be strengthened. Father, how we need for, to find purpose, goal, solace, hope in the midst of our suffering. Help us know that Jesus' presence is powerful. And Lord, he's personal. Help us know that Jesus cares so that we can walk this life by faith. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.